0: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's interview. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Barraclough, the Sarai Ribikoff Associate Professor of American Studies at Yale University. We'll be discussing her new book, Charos, new- How Mexican Cowboys Are Remapping Race and American Identity, which came out with the University of California Press earlier this summer in 2019. Welcome to the New Books Network, Laura. Thank you so much. Let's start by just hearing about you. Why don't you tell us about yourself and your background as a scholar?
1: Sure thing. So let's see where to start. So I um, am from Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles in the suburbs and um, grew up in a very unique place, which I'll I'll tell you more about in a little bit as we get into the book. But I grew up riding horses, um, had chickens, dogs, and, and sometimes other farm animals in the suburbs of L.A., um, and was bused back and forth, though, to magnet schools in suburban Los Angeles. Um, and through those experiences, I had a very early exposure to issues of um, uh, difference and inequality, even between and within different suburban neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So the place where I grew up was predominantly white. Um, and again, had we had horses, there were dirt roads, And other kinds of farm animals that were there. But at the same time, I had these experiences of of, uh, traveling by bus every day to go to school in neighborhoods that had um, much larger numbers of immigrants, of people of color, and also were denser and more urban and were poorer. And so those were part of my experiences on a daily basis. And I became very intrigued by those and went on to college at UC San Diego, where I majored in ethnic studies and urban studies and planning, precisely so that I could understand these differences between race and class as they were manifesting in different kinds of geographies in urban areas. And ever since then, you know, it's it's been um, a number of decades now, but those same types of concerns about the relationships between Race and class, land use and identity, especially in the American West, have always been at the core of my work. So I I work at the intersections of critical human geography and comparative ethnic studies, um, specifically in the American West and especially in, in cities and suburbs of the American West
0: and we will probably talk in a little bit more about uh about these these various geographies of the urban american west but speaking as someone that grew up on the east coast in new mm-hmm. york state i had you know various ideas about what urban los angeles was like and i had no idea that there were places where there were horses and things so there, it was very interesting to me reading that in your in your book
1: absolutely and you know my my first book um It was called Making the San Fernando Valley, Rural Landscapes, Urban Development, and White Privilege. And it it looks at these places in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles um, where I grew up. But through that process, I also came to recognize, and, and also as I traveled throughout the American West for conferences and for research and stuff like that, I started to realize that this... Um, quality of rural life and landscapes that have been intentionally designed to look rural, whether they are 100 years old or 10 years old, like in some of these gated communities that have rural features, those are really, um, I think, unique and specific to the American West. And so that was what I've been concerned with in a lot of my work is is tracing out these intentional and cultural histories of imagining the rural history, ranching history, cowboys and and everything that goes along with that in the development of the American West over time.
0: You touched on this a little bit already, but can you tell us a little bit more in depth how you became interested in the topic of the book, in the topic of charros specifically and their place in the North American West? Sure. Uh,
1: Yes. So as I mentioned, I grew up in a a very particular place in the suburbs of Los Angeles, a community that is called Shadow Hills. And this is a place that's one of uh, four neighborhoods within the city of Los Angeles that is um, where the rights to keep horses are intentionally protected by municipal zoning. And those intentional protections were put in place in the 1960s and 70s as as the suburbs of L.A. in general were growing really rapidly. Um, I grew up there in the 1980s and the 1990s. And so this is a time in Los Angeles and in California that were just really explosive for issues around race and immigration. Um, So this is the time when Proposition 187, which would have proposed to deny services to undocumented immigrants and their children, was passed in 1994. There's a lot of movement around um, English-only initiatives in California at this time. Um, I remember going to school at again at UCSD in the fall of 1996, and my intro to biology class was taken over by student activists who were protesting the recent repeal of affirmative action. Um, and so I grew up with all of that. It was a very um, explosive time in California history in the same way that we're now seeing at a much more national scale with the rise of nativism and anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, so I grew up with that in the 1980s and 1990s. But because of the place where I grew up in this this rural neighborhood, um, again, where large lot sizes and dirt roads were intentionally protected by city zoning policies, um, I, I experienced all of those debates around race and immigration and um, fears that many white people had around Mexican immigrants and Mexican culture. I experienced all of that in relationship to ideas and practices and land use policies related to rural history, Western history. Again, these um, often manufactured ideas around cowboys and ranching and rodeo. Um, And so, again, I I documented a lot of that in my first book as it related to the evolution of land use politics and the evolution of whiteness, Um, particularly in that part of Los Angeles as it became majority Latino and majority people of color in the 1990s. So the place where I lived, this this neighborhood of Shadow Hills was predominantly white. It was something like 88 or 87 percent white at a time when Los Angeles County as a whole was only about 30 percent white. And so the racial disparities were huge. However, and so I I documented the relationships between whiteness and this intentional protection of rural land use policy and, and the rights to keep horses in my first book. But Um, The neighborhood where I grew up was also immediately adjacent to um, the neighborhoods of San Fernando and Pacoima and Arlida, which were historically also the um, really, really important centers of Mexican immigrant and Mexican American population. So because of the, the longer agricultural history of the San Fernando Valley, there had always been... Uh, a population of Mexican immigrant and Mexican American workers who worked in the citrus fields and and other agricultural industries um, up in the valley before it became this kind of explosive post World War II suburb. So they were always there from the nineteen teens and twenties and and before that too at the mission at San Fernando, um, and so but then after the nineteen forties and fifties they were. Um, that historic presence turns into one of the first Mexican-American suburbs in Los Angeles, particularly centered around the old mission at San Fernando, the old Spanish mission. Um, And in fact, there were something like 50,000 people with Spanish surnames in that neighborhood by 1960. And this was the largest um, concentration of ethnic Mexican people outside of the barrio of East LA, which is much more familiar to those of us. So this is a major, major suburb, excuse me, ethnic Mexican suburb that's emerging in the San Fernando Valley by the nineteen fifties and sixties, and it's immediately adjacent to the place where I grew up. So by the time that I was living there again in the nineteen eighties and nineties, I recount in the book how um, I was really fortunate to own horses that I kept in my backyard. And after riding the bus home from these schools, these magnet schools I attended that were predominantly immigrant, predominantly people of color, and much more working class, I would come home to my you know predominantly white middle class rural neighborhood, get on my horse and ride out in the public spaces of the neighborhood. And out there, my friends and I would encounter um, Mexican people in particular. There were other communities of color out there riding horses too, but predominantly Mexican men riding these horses who were beautiful, beautiful horses, um, very well-groomed. They were wearing um, elaborate uh, saddles with silver and very intricately carved leather um, on their tack, on their equipment. Meanwhile, my friends and I were, you know, riding in our in our denim jeans, like our cut-off denim shorts, and sometimes we were barefoot, we didn't use saddles. And so, you know, we, there were these clear cultural interactions that we were having um, here that were shaped by the long legacies of the ways that space, suburban space, had been used in Los Angeles. And what I would hear from the parents of, of my friends who were white were things like, those Mexicans, they're just showing off. Why are they trying to dress so fancy? We're country out here. Why do they feel like they have to show off like that? Always trying to be macho. Um, And so what I learned in this sort of heady milieu of the anti-immigrant sentiments that were going on in California at the time, and then the racial disparities that I saw, both within my home neighborhood and then between my home neighborhood and the places where I went to school and, and out in, you know, with the nearby Mexican majority neighborhoods, is that there were very, very different ways of uh, constructing histories of horsemanship, and that the, this could also be a source of racial tension. So later, I would come to find out that those, those Mexican male riders that I was seeing out in the public spaces of my neighborhood were, in fact, charros, uh, Mexican cowboys, although that's not entirely an accurate translation, um, because you know the way that they were dressed suggests actually a much uh, richer a more elegant tradition a more skilled and dignified tradition um, and so i became very interested after i finished that first book about whiteness in the san fernando valley and its rural neighborhoods um, it was clear that there was always another part of the story um, that whiteness in the san fernando valley was was being constructed in relationship partly to mexican histories of claiming suburban space um, and to Mexican histories of ranching and rodeo and horsemanship and this Mexican figure of the, the Mexican horseman, which I later figured out was the Charro.
0: Well, tell us a bit about that history. Give us a history of Charros and what their origins are and what they've symbolized throughout Mexican and American history up through the 20th century.
1: Sure. And I, you know, I struggle to answer this question both in the book and here because <laughs> the Charro is, is like a 500-year-old character, right? Yeah. Um and it's, he's, he's a combination of history, but also a tremendous amount of myth-making. And so he's a lot like other characters in Western history and American history, really in any national history, um, where it's really actually quite difficult to disentangle the, the historical development of this figure with all of the cultural attachments and myth-making that has happened around him. But I will try. Um, So Mm -hmm. uh, as I've said, the the charro roughly translates as Mexican cowboy. And in fact, that is what I use in the subtitle of the book, How Mexican Cowboys Are Remapping Race and American Identity. But again, um, a better translation would probably be Mexican horseman or a gentleman horseman. This is a rural figure that is associated with uh, the development of ranching in colonial Mexico. This is a person who has tremendous skill, in riding horses, um, taming and caring for horses, raising large herds of cattle and other animals as a way to provide for his family. So this is a a character and a historical figure who is associated with landownership, with skill, um, with autonomy. So at the same time though, so that we can roughly say that that's the Charro's history, and I'll elaborate much more on that in a second, but But the word charro at the same time has come to have a wider set of associations, Uh, much like the word country or folksy in the United States, as in country music, right, has this edge of being both patriotic, nationalistic, but also maybe a little bit antiquated, a little rough around the edges, a little pre-modern. The same thing is true for the figure of the charro. So you might hear someone say, oh, it's much charro. He's, He's very country. And what they're alluding to is a person who, who has been deeply important to the history of Mexico across um, eras of Spanish colonialism, Mexican independence, post-revolutionary Mexico, but at the same time rides this tension between being rural, a little rough and pre-modern, but also really, really important to the development of Mexico as a, as a nation. So that, that history starts, again, about 500 years ago. Um, with the, the development of Spanish colonization and the use by the Spanish specifically of ranching as a way to extend Spanish colonial influence out from Mexico City um, into the western, central, uh, the regions just northwest and, uh, of Mexico City. So this is the region known as the Bajío, and it includes the Mexican states of Jalisco, Guanajuato, Aguascalientes, Michoacán, and surrounding areas. Um, and so, in these areas, the Spanish colonial administrators deliberately implemented ranching as a way to claim territory. Um, and so, there's the creation of haciendas and ranchos, where either Spanish or Creole um, administrators and ranch owners established these large colonial haciendas to, in order to breed cattle and breed horses for the claiming of territory in that region. What begins to develop over time. Um, is that they are hiring or otherwise coercing indigenous and mestizo laborers, the vaqueros or cowboys. This is, again, a much more working class uh, term than charro, which uh, is more associated with the elite and with landowners. But vaqueros who are indigenous, mestizo, working class, they're the laborers, begin to adapt and modify the equipment that they've inherited from the Spanish colonial administrators and Spanish colonial landowners. And to begin, they begin to really make it their own. So they develop new uh, techniques of roping. They develop new ropes themselves made out of local fibers. Um, it is there that indigenous and mestizo vaqueros uh, implement the idea of chaps or leg coverings, um, particularly because their clothing was not as, as high quality as the, the Spanish hacendados or charros. Um, and so over time, what develops is a composite or a mixture between the, the equipment and the techniques that are brought Um, from Spain and what actually develops through the implementation of ranching in the Spanish colonial frontier of Mexico. And so it's really, you know, in so many ways, Mexican nationalist culture um, alludes to this mestizo mixture between the Spanish colonial and the indigenous. And that's very much true in the development of of charro culture or ranching culture. The, The key place where we see this is in the annual roundups or rodeos. In English, of course, we call these rodeos. Um, these were annual or sometimes more often events where ranch owners, the elite, and their workers, these laboring uh, mestizo and indigenous vaqueros, would come together to brand cattle, um, to, to gather them, first of all, right? And then to brand cattle, to treat them if they had any medical ailments. Um, and so all of that practical activity would occur. And the ranch owners and workers from all around would gather. So these were social events that brought people together from across the entire region. But in addition to the practical activities of taking care of cattle that had been ranging for um, the previous months, it was also um, a ritual through which both the elite and the working class people who were involved in ranch culture would show off their skills. And so this is where events like bull riding um, start to show up, where people would, uh, workers and the the owners would get onto the bulls and ride them around these wild bulls as a contest to see who could last the longest. Um, or fancy and trick trick roping, again, as a way to show off skill, events that were not strictly linked to um, the, the needs of the cattle, but were instead a way for, for men, in particular, of different social classes to show off their skill um, in, in this type of labor. So all of this is developing in central western Mexico in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. It doesn't really start to develop or move north um, into the region that we now refer to as the U.S. Southwest or the U.S. West until the late 1700s and early 1800s. And this is a time when Spain is trying to tighten its grip on the territories that it was claiming, but that were very, very sparsely settled until this time. And um, in in specific response to the growing territorial claims of Russia and France, and, and in particular, the United States. So, in that time, late 1700s, early 1800s, Mexico, excuse me, Spain and then independent Mexico sponsor all kinds of colonization projects, again, using ranching and these rituals and practices associated with both elite landowners and indigenous and mestizo vaqueros to move um, Spanish colonial influence north. Of course, as it collides and as it is, excuse me, as it moves into this region, the region we now call the American West, it's meeting with um, the westward moving influences of Anglo-American settlers and Anglo-American cowboys and African-American cowboys and indigenous cowboys. And so in the region that we call the American West, all of this um, previous culture that had developed in the intermixture between Spanish colonization and indigenous Mexican influences um, then meet with an even more complicated set of racial and cultural kinds of cultural influences and labor practices. And so it evolves even still further and becomes a truly intercultural um, kind of ranch culture that exists in the 1800s. However, with the advent of U.S. conquest in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and the creation of a new borderline between the U.S. and Mexico, a lot of that interculturalism that had existed between um, the historic Mexican ranching societies of places like Texas um, in particular starts to decline and it becomes a much more um, capitalist ranching. I'm talking about ranching becomes a much more capitalist kind of production, much more associated with the emergence of Anglo American uh, owned businesses and land. Um, And so a lot of the interculturalism and the mixture that had long characterized Mexican ranching culture, Charradilla, what would come to be known as Charradilla, declines um, through a long sweep of history in in the second half of the 19th century. Um, And, you know, I go into that in in detail in in the book, and also it's been um, extensively documented by historians of the American West, this process whereby Mexican landowners and Mexican workers were rapidly dispossessed of their land. Um, displaced from the land, start migrating into either seasonal migrant agricultural labor or um, industrial jobs in and, and manufacturing jobs in the growing cities of what becomes the American West. Um, and so there's a rapid, rapid shift in the late 19th century, early 20th century, whereby that intercultural ranching society with its origins around um, the region just north northwest of Mexico City becomes... Uh, really, in the hands of um, anglo american corporations and business owners in a much more racially uh, stratified way um, getting getting so I told you this was a long history right yeah yeah <laughs> um, so all of this as it 's happening, you know um, what ends up happening in in both the United States and Mexico in this time is that as both countries are rapidly industrializing rapidly urbanizing in the early twentieth century, there starts to be um, a deep remorse for the sense of a rural and ranching history that many people, particularly the elites, feel is being lost. So, in both Mexico and the United States, there are all these cultural initiatives to um, recuperate the importance of the charro and the cowboy to nationalist history. So, in the United and this is really this really gets going in the 1930s. So, in the United States, in the 1930s, we see the establishment of the organization that would become the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association or the PRCA. This is also a period when Western uh, film and television is at its height of popularity, uh, when country Western music becomes tremendously popular. So in the United States in the 1930s, you have um, a lot of of cultural uh, fascination with the cowboy and his alleged importance to the development of the United States as a nation, particularly the, through westward expansion. And however, in most of those cultural productions that are, that are occurring within the United States, um, the cowboy is newly presented as a uniquely white working class male figure. Um, and, and this completely elides the much more complex uh, cultural and racial history of cowboys and ranching, and specifically the Mexican origins of that figure and the way that The development of of cowboys and ranching in the United States was very much indebted to um, traditions of uh, and techniques that had been born in Mexico several hundred years before it even arrived in the region that has become the American West. However, what's interesting, you know, and, and lots of scholars about the American West have written about that. But what's interesting is that the exact same time period elites in Mexico have very similar concerns. And so also in the 1930s, there are tremendous cultural initiatives to recuperate the Charro as a um, representative Mexican figure, a figure that who, who uniquely represents all that Mexico has been and is going to be, lo Mexicano. Um, and so in the 1930s, at the exact same time as the PRCA is being established in the United States and as country western music is taking off in Mexico at that time, Mexican elites in Mexico City, men, businessmen and politicians, create um, the first national federation of charros. And this is an organization that creates rules and regulations for how Mexican rodeo events are going to be practiced. Um, It establishes nine official events of the Mexican rodeo or the charreada um, it writes histories of Mexican rodeo that really insist on its development as a Mexican tradition, not a Spanish colonial tradition, and certainly not a tradition that developed in the, the northern frontier or the, the region that we now call the American West. So in the 1930s, is you know, both nations are going through this similar process, but they're both constructing this very, very culturally mixed ranching society, which was always a composite of Spanish colonialism. Um, indigenous Mexican influences, labor histories that that crossed borders, um, all of that is being simplified in the creation of these new national cultures that are centered on the American cowboy and the Mexican charro. And so what I look at in the book is what ethnic Mexicans in the United States do with that after the 1930s, how they take this, this figure that has a tremendously complicated and long history and how they use the Charro as both a symbol of Mexican nationalism and a way to claim rights belonging in the United States.
0: And as we've already talked about, that it's one of the big themes in your book, people tend to think about um, the American West and the history of ranching in the American West as a rural story. But in your book, you talk about a lot, you really emphasize that the history of the Charros in the United States in the American West is a story of cities. It's an urban story. Mm -hmm. And you tell this history through the lens of a handful of Western cities across the middle decades of the 20th century. So can you first tell us about Los Angeles and the history of the Charos in Los Angeles, um, and in particular, their relationship to policing and to state power? Sure.
1: Um, So yeah, so I I would first start actually by explaining why this has been an urban phenomenon. So you're right that the charro and the cowboy are both figures that are associated with rural and agrarian places and with histories of ranching. And yet, um, for both cowboys and charros, the way that they have been deployed in the 20th century and performed in the 20th century are overwhelmingly urban. In the case of Charros, I think this is for a couple of reasons. One is that the ethnic Mexican population itself in the American West um, is overwhelmingly urban and has been since the middle of the 20th century, in large part because of these long historical processes through which they have been displaced from rural and agrarian land and have had to migrate into cities to take work in in service and in industry. So on the one hand, the ethnic Mexican population has been overwhelmingly urban, Um, But also, and probably more importantly, um, chararia, Mexican rodeo, and and all of the sport and artistic components that surround it um, has always been associated with people with resources, um, with the elite or with the upper middle class. And it it remains that to this day. In Mexico, chararia, it continues to be associated with the elite. In the United States, it's somewhat more accessible, um, but still, if you think about what's required to participate in the sports of Mexican rodeo, like bull riding and team roping, um, it, it takes money, you know, it, it takes resources. You have to be able to own your own horses. You have to o- be able to own land on which to practice and compete. Um, you have to have money for trailers. You have to be able to fly or drive all across the American West or to Mexico to compete in the urban sporting culture that Charadilla has become. And so this takes money. And as a result, most of the people who participate in this, this, uh, sport of cheddarilla, of Mexican rodeo, um, are members of the middle class, the upper middle class, and the elite among the Mexican American community in the United States. Um, so as a result, these are people who tend to be business owners, investors, um, they tend to be, um, Perhaps not highly educated, but to have some exposure to education, and all of those things are associated with uh, living in cities and investing in cities over time. So, in the book, you're right that I, I do um, I do focus on cities because that is where chadros and their associations have emerged and have been most active. This really is an urban story, and the first cities in the United States where Mexican Americans really begin to organize around the Charro and to do something with this mythology attached to the historical figure are San Antonio and Los Angeles. And in both cities, um, Mexican-American men begin to form Charro associations or formal organizations of Mexican cowboys that compete together in almost exactly the same year, 1946 or 1947. I start with Los Angeles, though, because um, it is in Los Angeles that we first encounter a very influential figure um, named Eugene Biscayluz, who was a sheriff of Los Angeles County from 1932 to 1958. And Biscayluz was a uh, descendant of an elite Californial family. So he his his family was actually mixed between Anglo and Mexican um, descendants. Um, but as a result, he grew up um, in in Los Angeles at a time when it was transitioning from um, a Mexican-majority city to an Anglo-majority city. He was bilingual, he was bicultural, and he becomes the sheriff of Los Angeles County in 1932, which is really quite remarkable. Um, and in fact, Mexican officials you, unilaterally comment on how remarkable it is that Los Angeles has a Spanish-speaking sheriff in the 1930s in a time when Los Angeles is uh, rapidly, rapidly growing in population, in geography, sprawling all over. Um, And it it actually is quite remarkable. So so Biscay Luz um, holds this position as head sheriff for 26 years, from 1932 to 1958. And during that time, his office is responsible for some of the most iconic moments in Los Angeles history as they impact Mexican-Americans. So the Sleepy Lagoon riots or Sleepy Lagoon murder um, and the Zoot Suit riots happen under his watch. And his office is involved in, in persecuting working class and immigrant Mexicans who are involved or who are believed to be involved in that. Um, and so, you know, you have this phenomenon whereby a Spanish-speaking sheriff that many Mexicans are applauding for representing Mexicans well in a position of power is also persecuting working class and immigrant Mexicans in the city through, through crime um, control policies. However, Piscalus was also totally enamored with the figure of the charro. So there are many, many photographs where he appears at public events representing the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department wearing a traje de charro, a a charro suit. And for for listeners who may not be familiar with what that looks like, this is the same suit that mariachi musicians wear. Um, So it's it's embroidered. They usually wear a bow tie. Um, It's a very intricate suit. Biscay Luz loved to wear these suits to public events, again, where he was representing the Sheriff's Department um and so what i what i think we see happening here and what i try to tease out in the book is the way that the traje de charro becomes um you know you can imagine it in opposition to the zoot suit these are two forms of clothing that ethnic mexicans of very different social classes are wearing to try to claim power in relationship to the state in los angeles so Biscay luz wearing the traje de charro is able to um move through the most elite Uh, and exclusive clubs and social spaces of Los Angeles in part because the Charro suit represents this history of dignified Mexican land ownership and skill and autonomy at the same time as he and his office are persecuting working class people who are wearing the Zoot suit, right? And so if you think about those two suits together, they say a lot about the evolution of class politics and, and tensions among different social classes within the ethnic Mexican community. So Biscaylús, um, in many ways, initiates the wearing of the traje de charro among elite and upper middle class ethnic Mexicans in the United States. And there are many other figures like him um, in other cities throughout the Southwest who are who are doing something similar with um, by invoking the history of the charro through the way that they wear this clothing. But Biscaylús also does something important, even for middle class and working class ethnic Mexicans in Los Angeles in the mid twentieth century. Which is that he creates, um, in this time, in 1947, he creates a mounted posse program. And this is in the aftermath of a, of a dam disaster that had happened, um, up in St. Francis Dam near Los Angeles, uh, on the boundaries of Los Angeles County, excuse me. So the mounted posse program were linked to each of the substations. Um, of the sheriff's office around Los Angeles County, and they were mostly tasked with search and rescue work. So people had to ride their own horses. These were volunteers, um, and they would ride their own horses through the hillsides of LA County looking for missing persons or doing repair work after a flood, stuff like that. Most of those uh, posse programs were located in the majority white or exclusively white suburbs of LA County. However, East Los Angeles um, was also part of L.A. County and had its own sheriff's substation. So there was a Posse um, program, a Posse district office that was created in East L.A., and the people who joined it were working class or lower middle class Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants who lived in East L.A. or in the surrounding neighborhoods and who were deeply interested in practicing um, charreria through the Posse program. So in the late 1940s and early 1950s, um, a number of people from a number of of Mexican men from the East LA Barrio start to join the posse program. And early on, they invite Sheriff Pizcaluz to one of their meetings and one of their competitions. And they ask him if they can wear the traje de charro as their official sheriff's department uniform. And he agrees because he is also enamored with this figure. And so I I think this is really remarkable, you know, to think about at this time in LA history that we're, we're used to thinking about as a moment of tremendous persecution of Mexicans. And of course, that happened. But at the same time, there are a handful of Mexican American men who start to wear this symbol, this suit associated with Mexican nationalism and which also invokes the Mexican origins of many Western traditions. And they start to wear that, um, to represent Um, one of the most powerful state agencies and the most violent agencies um, associated with police brutality and misconduct in the United States. Um, And so for a number of years, uh, these men who are involved with the East LA Sheriff's Posse do ride, do perform at parades, wearing their trajes de or representing the Sheriff's Department. They did not have access to the same kinds of elite social spaces that Vizcailuz did, but they did Um, Do something really remarkable, I think, again, in in claiming a place for these Mexican histories of ranching um, and rodeo and cowboys through the L.A. Sheriff's Department.
0: And that's one of the reasons why I really liked your book is because it serves as a good uh, I guess kind of a counterweight to a lot of the histories that are told about Los Angeles. I'm thinking about work like that by William Deverell in "Whitewashed mm-hmm. Adobe," which is a wonderful book. But yes. you're telling a more complicated story and saying, yes, this whitewashing happened, but there's more to it than that as well.
1: There is, and you know, um, uh, Bill Deverell was on my committee and and helped train me as a Western historian. And oh, I'm, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm totally <laughs> indebted to that book. It was, yeah. um, and it helped me a lot in thinking about the development of LA over time. I will say that. The only reason I even know about the the participation of of Mexicans from East L.A. in the sheriff's posse is because of one really important document I found in the (laughs) Chicano Studies Research Center at UCLA. You know, the the history of this um, group of men who joined the East L.A. posse is not documented in mainstream sources. And the only Mm. reason I know about it is because there was this person, Miguel Flores, who is an amateur charro and amateur historian who conducted oral history interviews he, w- he was a charro in Los Angeles and he conducted oral history interviews with these, these men who became involved. And so they refer to what they did in the sheriff's department. But otherwise, I saw very, very little evidence. And the sheriff's department itself has, um, does not have public res- records available on this from this period. So um, I, I think you know, that's one major reason why we haven't known much about this history until now.
0: And being Los Angeles, uh, film also plays a role in the story that you tell. And you say in the book that in particular, the 1959 movie, The Young Land, gave Charos an opportunity to raise questions about the relationship between race and history and nationality in Los Angeles and in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes.
1: So The Young Land is kind of an amazing film. It's It's produced or it's released in 1959. It was filmed in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And it is about um, the a case a, a murder that happens in Los Angeles, um, a fictionalized Los Angeles in 1850, right after uh, the the end of the U.S. Mexico War and the but before really like robust legal institutions and juridical institutions have been created in California or really anywhere in this new region, um, and so it's about a murder trial of a white outlaw who kills kind of an upstanding Mexican citizen of. Of What has become um, a united states controlled California, and it centers on the jury trial around um, this white outlaw and it's it 's actually quite um, amazing as a film because it 's all the way through very, very sympathetic to the plight of Mexican landowners as in particular and also Mexican workers in California after u s conquest. Um, what interests me though in the film and and the way that I write about it in the book is that um, the jury who actually sits to hear the case is made up of members of this East L.A. sheriff's posse um, who who sit in the jury box during the film wearing their trajes de charro, the same outfits they would have been wearing um, as as representatives of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. And they're credited in the film. Um, and ultimately, you know, they the, the jury and the judge end up deciding that the white outlaw is guilty um and so in a in a lot of ways the film upholds the idea that the American justice system also is serving Mexicans and that they have been completely involved at every stage in the legal process leading to this outcome of justice on behalf of Mexicans, which you know is quite different from the historical record but um of what would have happened in these places. But it's a very progressive film. Um and so the the charros from East LA who have been associated with the Sheriff's Department play a central role in actually deciding this fair verdict um, that holds white murderers accountable for for the murder of Mexican people. So it's a representational victory in that sense. But it was also, you know, what I'm interested in the book, too, is is what was happening behind the scenes. The production history of this film was really interesting. The producer of The Young Land, Patrick Ford, had brought in two esteemed, very experienced, and well-regarded charros from Tijuana Roberto de la Madrid and Mario Arteaga um, to serve as consultants and technical directors on the film. And so what ends up happening, you know, we have no historical records of this. So I had to sort of imagine, um, but that between shots um, while they're waiting for production to occur, the charros from East LA and the charros from Tijuana are hanging out together. And we do have records um, later that, um, Arteaga, Mario Arteaga, goes on to star in a number of other Western films. He remains in Los Angeles, um, despite the fact that he's from Tijuana. Um, He remains in Los Angeles, continues to work in the Western film industry, but he also serves as like a coach and a trainer to the charros from East L.A. What ends up happening um, is that Biscay Luz, the head sheriff, retires in 1958, just one year before this film comes out. His successor, Peter Pitchus, is not at all interested in charros, and in fact finds them threatening to the vision of this modern industrializing city that he's trying to create. Um, and so Pitches, in the early 1960s, tells the East LA Sheriff's Charro Posse that they have to, that anyone who is not a citizen, a US citizen, has to resign immediately. And they are also forbidden from wearing their charros suits as part of the, the Sheriff's Department. And so most of the Mexican men from East LA who had been part of the East L.A. Sheriff's Posse, quit at that time. Not all of them, but most. But because they've made these relationships with De La Madrid and especially Mario Arteaga, who remains again in Los Angeles, they're able to establish an autonomous Charro Association, the Charros de Los Angeles, which is um, formally accredited by that national federation in Mexico City in 1962, and it becomes the very first accredited Charro Association in the United States at that time.
0: San Antonio, as you mentioned earlier, is another major site of charreria in the uh, 20th century, the middle decades of the 20th century, particularly as that city turns increasingly to tourism as a major economic driver in the 60s and 70s. Can you tell us about the relationship between Charos and Charo organizations uh, and tourism and urban development and how these all kind of intertwine in San Antonio in particular?
1: Absolutely. So in San Antonio, the first Charro Association is established in 1947, which, again, is the same year that the Sheriff's Posse Program um, is, is established in Los Angeles. So the the organization, the formal organization of Charros is happening at the same time. But in San Antonio, it follows a really different path. Um, in San Antonio, the Charro Association in 1947 is started by a group of Mexican-American businessmen. They're almost entirely U.S. citizens. They are all members of the middle class. Most of them are college educated, which, you know, all of this is um, really rare and unusual in San Antonio at that time. So there's some data suggesting that the middle class, the Mexican-American middle class in San Antonio in the 1950s was, excuse me, in the 1930s was only about 5% of the Mexican population. So this was um, uh, the Mexican origin population in San Antonio and throughout South Texas was overwhelmingly poor Um, in the 1930s and 40s. But the people who go on to form the Charro Association in the mid-1940s are part of that tiny, tiny Mexican-American middle class. They are business owners, they're lawyers, dentists, doctors, um, and they own businesses and operate businesses in the the Mexican west side barrio of San Antonio. But a lot of them actually don't live there. They they live in um, Anglo-majority neighborhoods, exclusive neighborhoods, And so what what I'm interested in in the book is the way that they serve as sort of racial brokers, what my friend and colleague Genevieve Carpio has referred to as racial brokers um, in her study of Mexican-American real estate agents. These are people who are uniquely positioned between the majority of the Mexican immigrant and Mexican-American population, which is overwhelmingly poor. But they're also uniquely positioned to negotiate for the needs of the Mexican origin population with the Anglo-American business class. They're sort of um, uh, creating bridges between those communities. And they're also creating bridges with the North Mex- northern Mexican um, business class. So there's a lot of industrialization that's starting to happen in northern Mexico at this time. Um, there are a number of, of Mexican business owners who are crossing into San Antonio to buy equipment, to make trade deals, to do all kinds of business arrangements. And the charros become brokers of that. Um, so they're primarily businessmen but they also create this charro association the san antonio charro association in 1947 sort of as like a cultural complement um in much the same way that that business people now might go golfing together these folks were riding as charros together so they they started um and you know and they would they they had a ranch that they leased for a while on the south side of san antonio and they would host all kinds of events there for um, both visiting businessmen from Mexico, but also for local events, like to benefit um, uh, impoverished communities in the West Side Barrio. And they would invite English-speaking reporters. And so they were doing all this work through Charadilla to bridge economic development and uh, the cultural practice associated with Charadilla. And here again, I think the, the specific associations of charros and Charadilla with the Mexican elite with landowning, with histories of economic autonomy are really, really important um, and, and are what allowed the Charros in San Antonio to do that kind of bridging work between different communities. It becomes, their work becomes focused on, on tourism, though, because San Antonio in this period was really in dire economic straits. So other cities, Texas cities like Tex, excuse me, like Dallas and Houston are really taking off in this period. And San Antonio is struggling. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's losing its position as a regional hub in Texas and in the American West as the entire region um, industrializes and becomes tied to the defense industry. And so civic leaders in San Antonio turn to, you know, the longstanding staple, um, which is tourism. And in particular, they turn to tourist activities that are associated with what scholars have referred to as the Spanish fantasy past. So these are um, cultural festivals where people would be encouraged to dress up um, in Spanish colonial costumes, including the costumes associated with the charro. And normally in Western history, when people think about Spanish fantasy past, you know, they they talk about this as um, an exercise in imperialist nostalgia, a way that white American settlers um, created a unique identity for their cities um, and lured tourism. But what I'm concerned to do in the book, and in particular this chapter about San Antonio, is look at the ways that Mexican Americans were also creating these portrayals of Spanish colonial history and Mexican history through the figure of the charro. And what might have seemed to be, um, only white imperialist nostalgia for this, you know, conquered Spanish and Mexican history was also a way that Mexican Americans and Me- Mexican immigrants were expressing their ongoing attachments to Mexican cultural nationalism. So both of those things were happening at the same time. White folks were playing dress up in Spanish colonial costumes, and Mexican folks were too, but for reasons that allowed them to express their continuing attachment to Mexican nationalism. So the Chavros are really capitalizing on that as a way to um, both promote their own position um, in San Antonio, and, you know, they've become really unique among Mexican-American organizations in San Antonio. You know, they're like the only organizations that are um, that receive awards from the San Antonio Conservation Society. Um, they are routinely participating in Fiesta from a very early, early age or early stage, excuse me. Um, they, they send their queens to ride in floats for the opening of economic development and foreign trade zones. And so they're really quite influential in San Antonio and San Antonio's economic development at a time, again, when most Mexicans have very, very little political or economic power in the city.
0: And the final urban zone that you focus on in the book is along Colorado's Front Range. And I really appreciated this section for a couple reasons. For one thing, because I lived in Denver for a couple years, Ah, so I always like reading about Denver's history, but also because this section really emphasizes that. That the, that this is not just a, a story about particular cities. That the history of Charos and Charteria throughout the American West is often an interregional story. And people are mobile and, yes. and, and things move around throughout the American West and throughout the United States. Because in this section, you talk about the Front Range and you range all the way down into New Mexico in times. Um, so I, I really appreciated that you emphasized that. But in this chapter, you particularly focus on the cities of Denver and Pueblo. So... Tell us about these places and tell us how visible Charos were in these cities in the 1970s and how they were connected to such well-known struggles as that for education, integration, and justice in Colorado at around the same time period.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I hope to do in the book is to think about the geographic variability of of Mexican-American struggles around the charro or that involved the Charos since the 1930s. um, you know, it's probably not surprising that the Charro first emerges as a guiding force for Mexican-American social action in Texas and in California, and there's all kinds of good historical reasons for that. The Charro does not become a compelling figure at all in Colorado until really the early 1970s. And um, and really, he only lasts as a, an important figure there for about 10 to 12 years. And then, you know, so there's a Charro Association that's formed in Denver in 1972 um and and something similar is happening in Pueblo in about the same time period. But by 1985, both of those charro associations have died down. Um, and so the charro in Colorado does not have the same kind of um significance to people. And there's the, the main reason for that is largely because of the distinct histories of migration um, of Mexican origin people to New Mexico, which then feeds the migration of laborers to Colorado cities um, in the 1940s in particular. So, um, so one of the things that I was hoping to do with this chapter is to think about how the different geographies of Mexican migration and settlement affect the way that, that Mexican American people, um, make meaning of this figure of the Charro. And in Colorado, he just, the Charro was just not that important to people in the same way that he was in places like San Antonio or Los Angeles. Nonetheless, in the 1970s, as I've said, um, Uh, A number of, well, actually, they're Hispanos. There are people who identify as Hispano, not as Mexican-American. So these are people who trace their personal origins and their familial origins to the sheep herding societies of New Mexico and whose families migrated to cities like Denver or Pueblo in the 1940s for educational opportunity or economic opportunity. Um, But they are not people who have deep attachments to Mexican nationalism. In fact, if anything, they identify as Spanish, as colonial. Um, So they are, they identify as Hispanos, but nonetheless, in the 1970s, um, some Charro associations are formed and they start to do really important work, as you said, around education and public art and a number of other things. And in the book, I argue that the, the main reason that they do that is because the Charro in the 1970s, particularly the early 1970s, is a unifying force for an ethnic Mexican community that is tremendously fragmented along the lines of politics. Um, political and ideological affiliation and social class. So, you know, in Denver in the early 1970s, uh, Corky Gonzalez and the Crusade for Justice are mobilizing a radical Chicano militant faction, and it's doing all kinds of interesting work. Um, But again, many of the Hispanos that have much longer histories in New Mexico and Colorado do not identify with that. Um, And in fact, they reject those kinds of radical politics. And at the same time, you finally have A larger stream of Mexican migrants who are moving into the region. Colorado did not have substantial numbers of Mexican migrants earlier in the 20th century. So you have these three distinct communities, Mexican migrants, Chicanos and Hispanos, who really are quite politically fragmented and are having all kinds of trouble electing political representatives because of ideological differences. So what I argue in the book is that the Charro becomes a unifying symbol that all of those communities can agree on, but for different reasons. And I think what unites them really is the association of the chatter with these histories of land ownership, of skilled and dignified labor that would have been important to all three of those different factions, um, regardless of their specific migration histories. So they do a number of things in the 1970s. In the interest of time, I'll just talk about the movement for educational justice and bilingual Mm -hmm. education. So in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court hears this um, really landmark case, um Key, the Keys case, which decides that, um, that Hispanics are a legitimate class for purposes of school desegregation, and orders the city of Denver to implement um, a desegregation um, program. In this context, um, there's a woman named Lena Archuleta, who is an Hispana from rural New Mexico. She also becomes the first Latina principal um, at an elementary school in Denver Public Schools in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And she and her husband are both members of the Denver Chattel Association, which again is established in 1972. Um, She had majored in Spanish language. She was a major advocate of bilingual education. And she saw her role as a principal and as a teacher to create opportunities for Spanish-speaking students, whether they were Hispano, Mexicano, or Chicano, or something else entirely, to um, be able to speak Spanish without shame, and to feel pride in their cultural heritage. So she authors a curriculum guide, which is called The Rodeo and Cattle Industry, Its Rich Spanish-Mexican Heritage, and which she publishes in 1973 and circulates um, throughout Denver Public Schools. And it's really a remarkable document. It it equips teachers with um, an understanding of some of the history that we talked about earlier, uh, with the Mexican origins of ranching and of rodeo. It talks about the class differences between charros and vaqueros. It, um, it talks about Spanish language words that have been incorporated into the English language, um, that refer to ranching and rodeo, like the word chaps, which is uh, a shortened version of chapareras. And, um, she, she writes about these in a way that, you know, she, she writes, for example, one line that says, um, The reason that that word was shortened to CHAPS is because westward-moving white settlers were having trouble learning Spanish and speaking Spanish. And through moves like that, she, I think, tries to um, equip elementary school students with a sense of pride and also a sense of empathy as they might be trying to learn English. And so there's all these subtle ways, again, that she uses the history of the Charro and the Vaquero to empower Spanish-speaking students in Denver public schools at this precise moment of desegregation and the rollout of bilingual education in the mid-1970s.
0: And there are still active Charteria organizations and uh, an active uh, culture around Charteria today, um, as you talk about in the book. Can you tell us a bit about the more recent history of Charos, particularly in Los Angeles? And in addition to that, what are some of the issues that Charteria is facing today?
1: Sure. So. Um, the organizations in Colorado, as I said, died down in the mid-1980s, but actually in the early 1990s, Charrería in the United States explodes in popularity, um, and this is for a variety of reasons, but I think also related to the attack that many Mexican immigrants feel that they're under um, through, through the onslaught of, of initiatives that are targeting the Spanish language, that are targeting Mexican cultural practices. Um, but it's also about the migration to new areas. So in the 1990s, we see the migration of Mexican immigrants to places in the United States where they did not have a long historical presence like Nebraska or, um, certain areas of Nevada or Oklahoma. And so we've really seen a proliferation, hundreds of new chatter associations that have been established since the 1990s. Um, and it's really become much more popular. So in the book, um, I try to detail some of the predicaments and the unique challenges that Charro Associations have faced in this more recent period. Um, one of them, I, I detail through the story of the, the Charros La Altena, which is a, a Charo Association that forms in the suburb of Pico Rivera in the city of Los Angeles. And um, this is an organization that had been active. It was an outgrowth of the Charros de Los Angeles, that earlier group that was formed out of the East LA Sheriff's Posse, um, but it's a suburban organization. And they are forming in the city of Pico Rivera as Pico Rivera is transforming from a majority white suburb to a majority Latino suburb. And in that suburb, um, city officials decide that what they're going to do is build the United States' largest um, rodeo arena specifically for Mexican rodeo, for Charteria. And so the city uh, signs a complex set of legal agreements with the county of Los Angeles and with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to lease this space and to build a Mexican rodeo arena, lienzo. And they go into all kinds of debt. And because of the way the lease agreements are signed, they actually can never legally make a profit from the facility. Um, and so it has it's a really financially strapped kind of facility, even as it is one of the most well-known and well-regarded um, lienzos charros in the United States. So it hosts huge concerts, thousands of people come, um, and they attend these Mexican rodeo events. Uh, tourists from Mexico come. It's, it's a famous facility, so it's a really important site of Mexican cultural pride, but at the same time, it rests on this foundation of fiscal and legal instability. And I, I make the argument in the book that, that that conundrum between sites of cultural expression and foundations of fiscal and legal instability are really at the core of the way Mexican-Americans have experienced suburbanization, particularly since the 1970s. So that's one of the challenges that faces contemporary charros in the United States. And there are other places outside of Pico Rivera where similar dynamics hold. Another major challenge that I write about in the final chapter of the book concerns questions about animal welfare. Um, Excuse me. Um, So um, starting in the early 1990s, again, this same period of, of anti-immigrant sentiment, um, in that same era and in that same context, animal welfare begins to emerge as a more organized movement and starts to target certain events within the Mexican rodeo. Um, in particular, an event, or two events actually, known as the manganas, in which um, um, uh, Charro will try to rope the front legs of a horse that's running and then bring her to the ground in a shoulder roll. And this is a historic event that originated on the, in those historic roundups in, um, under the Spanish colonial control of Mexico and, and the development of the haciendas. Um, but, and if done right, the horse is supposed to, you know, go in a shoulder roll and, um, roll without harm. It's a way of bringing horses down when, without, um, when you don't have corrals, right? But in an urban context, um, and in again, this sort of, tense climate around race and immigration in California and other places in the 1990s, those events really become targeted by animal welfare activists. And as a result, in California in 1993, the state legislature passes a state law that bans um, these events, the manganas, in California, anywhere in California. And after that, um, a number of other states, uh, including states that are close to the border, but also states farther from the border, like Nebraska and Oklahoma and Oregon and Colorado, start to consider similar laws. Um, what's important to note here is that after the California state legislature bans these events in 1993, all of the charters in the United States met in California, and they agreed that this was something they needed to modify, and they came to a voluntary agreement where they would no longer practice the manganas in that same traditional way. So instead, they use what they call a breakaway rope, um, which after it catches the horse, it breaks off so that the horse does not actually come to a shoulder roll. And they also use leg protection on the horses. And and the U.S. Chatter associations have made these policies so that any official um, sanctioned Mexican rodeo event has to abide by them. As a result, since 1994, the manganas in their traditional form have not been practiced in the United States. Nonetheless, um, more than a dozen states have actively pursued um, bans on them. And the Mexican charros are frustrated by this, I think, because they are no longer practicing the dangerous events. And yet they have to continue to travel to city council chambers, to state legislative chambers, um, to try to oppose these bans. And the reason that they're opposing them is because often the language of these these legislative um, policy, legislative uh, proposals is um, quite criminalizing actually to Mexicans and immigrant culture. And, and also um, what they end up doing then as they show up to these hearings is trying to make the argument first, that Mexican rodeo is not any more dangerous to animals than American style rodeo. Um, And there's been a number of studies that have shown that to be true. Um, And they're also though, trying to do, uh, to make a series of arguments about the centrality of Mexican rodeo to Western heritage and Western history. Um, and here is where, as a, as a historian and as a geographer, I find it their arguments and their participation in this political process really interesting because, you know, on the one hand, they are showing up for pragmatic reasons to oppose these bans or at least to create um, policy documents that give them some wiggle room um, or at least that don't criminalize them. But along the way, they end up having deeply historic or or, um, historic interpretation, right? They're engaging in in exercises in historic interpretation about the ranching history of the West and how it developed and the central role of Mexicans in the development of ranching, of rodeo, and of the figure of the cowboy or the charro. So what I essentially argue um, there is that it is through these animal welfare debates that charros in the United States have become Formal political actors for the first time. So they've always been involved in various kinds of cultural politics. But now they're, you know, they have formed political action committees. Um, they are doing fundraising. They send, they train their members to testify um, before state legislative chambers. And so now they're engaging in formal politics um, for the first time. And along the way, they are, are doing all kinds of interesting uh, work of historical interpretation to recuperate the role of Mexicans in the ranching and rodeo traditions of what has become the American West.
0: And finally, as a means of uh, having my guests summarize what are often very complicated and rich works of history and scholarship, um, I want to ask you, what is one takeaway that you hope readers get from the book? If, you, if there is a, a single takeaway, what would that be?
1: Oh, gosh, only one. Okay, Um,
0: (laughs) It's always a hard question, but I I, I insist on asking. Yeah.
1: You know, it's what I would say. um, And this is something that a lot of historians of the American West are thinking about. But is that all of these icons that we associate with Western history um, are are deeply contested. Right. Um, And so in this case, I'm looking at the contested history and memory around A figure that we often refer to as a cowboy, but that in fact has really, really complicated intercultural, interracial, transnational histories through which it has developed. Um, And because of those complicated histories, many, many communities, diverse communities in the present can lay claim to those histories and can use, you know, can can tell those histories of a figure like the cowboy in alternative ways um, that... Create space for them to pursue their own goals in the present. So I think for that reason, you know the the this is such a um, central topic in Western history is the the way that myth and history interact, but also how complex these social histories are. In a, again, in a way that creates space for diverse communities to maneuver.
0: And my last question, and I know that the book has only been out for about, <laughs> oh, what is it? About two weeks now? A couple now? of weeks, but, yeah. A couple of weeks, yeah. It's fresh fresh off the presses. Um, but nonetheless, can we get a preview of uh, what you might be working on next? Do you have any projects that have been percolating that you might, you might be jumping into soon? Well, tell us. I do.
1: Um, the next book project that I'm working on is about the National Historic Trails System in the United States, which was created by Congress in 1968. And then the specific... Um, category of National Historic Trails was elaborated in 1978. So these are, uh, it's a public history system that recognizes routes of migration, of settlement, of military conquest, or of native removal um, that have been important to the United States and its making as a nation. Um, So some of the trails that might be more familiar to people are like the Oregon Trail or the Pony Express Trail, the Lewis and Clark Trail. There are currently 19 of these National Historic Trails that have been authorized by Congress. And so I will be looking at them as, um, a, again, a way that diverse communities lay claim to membership and belonging in the United States through the ways that they tell their histories of migration or, in the case of Native communities, of removal or of other kinds of mobility.
0: So more work on myth and history in the American West. Definitely. That sounds like a great project. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Dr. Laura Barakloff is the Sarai Ribikoff Associate Professor of American Studies at Yale University, and her latest book is Charos How Mexican Cowboys Are Remapping Race and American Identity, which came out with the University of California Press in June of 2019. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Laura. Thank you so much.